for us the Luke account of the resurrection of Christ from uh, Luke 24. So if you have a Bible with you, you can read along with me, but we're going we're gonna to read exactly what it says. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he, was, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only visiting from Jerusalem? Are you the only one here that doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I think they should have been tipped off to this uh, being Jesus by now. But it says he was preventing them from recognizing him, so it's a, it's a miraculous cloaking, if you will. But who was always describing who he was using the scriptures to his disciples? Jesus, day after day. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with him on the road? And he opened the scripture to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen 
and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking among themselves about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds, and they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. That's a crazy, crazy um, account, and you know, very surprising. You know, when we hear the story so many times, and we don't, we we lose these details of Jesus appearing in their presence and scaring them, just these 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 poor people trying to figure everything out after their their leader had scattered. But he says in, in Luke 24, this is what I told you about while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then it says he opened their minds so they could understand scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And we know from Acts 1 that he's talking about sending his Holy Spirit into his people. But that's getting ahead of the story. I love Luke's account of the resurrection. You know, Jesus is so kind as to explain everything to his disciples once again, after, after explaining it to them so many times during his life on the earth. And he taught them about himself while being disguised as a stranger before them, which is really uh, crazy. This anonymous guy walking on the road shows up and starts describing himself to the people, unbeknownst to them. And Jesus reviews with them all of the scripture prophecies about himself that he had to fulfill from the law of Moses, from the prophets, and from the Psalms. All that history um, he, he fulfilled by talking with them. And now he's standing there among, among them. And you can almost see those cartoon light bulbs flashing above their heads. All of a the sudden, they're like, oh, we finally get it. It's you. He breaks bread with them. They recognize him, and he disappears. At just the moment when they recognize him, he, he disappears from in front of them. What a story. That's crazy. Jesus sums up all of his earthly work to them, saying, This is what is written. The Messiah was supposed to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. In saying this, 1,500 to 2,000 years of scripture 
that had been written over a long period of time, the, the whole Old Testament of the Bible, um, has been fulfilled. And the world, in a very real way, enters a new age after this moment. Something we, we know is the age of the church. Where, where Jesus has come by his spirit and entered into his church, and then the, the church continues the testimony of who Jesus is, his love, and reaching out to the world and doing all that he, um, he did in his earthly ministry. You know, the church was, was born. And, uh, and we still are experiencing the effects of Jesus' resurrection today here at church as we embody the spirit of Jesus Christ and share Jesus with the world. Now, this is a, a current story. And the message is still clear as a bell in our day as it was in Jesus' day. Now, in light of Jesus' work of fulfilling all of the scriptures about himself, his work on the cross, where he literally gave his life for us, Jesus calls us with this timeless message, repent of your sins. He actually says in this phrase, uh, th this phrase in his, uh, in his explanation, he says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations. You know, being in the, in the age that we live in, the church age, this is still the message we're preaching here years and years after Jesus Christ. Repentance, forgiveness of sins, we're still preaching that until he comes back. But what does that mean? What is, what's the meaning of these words, repentance for the forgiveness of sins? I think that this is something that really, um, we hear it so much that we stop, uh, we stop listening to, to the words in some ways. It becomes very commonplace to us. But what does it mean? Well, it means changing one's mind and heart, resulting in a conversion to a new way of living. That's what repentance means. We think of it as simply confessing our sins and being forgiven of our sins. But Jesus thinks of repentance as a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction in life altogether. A change. Repent. Remember when John the Baptist came, he said, make way, make way, make ready a way for the Lord, make a straight path for him. Repent. And then Jesus came and said, repent, the kingdom of God is near. And now we say repent, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom that God is building is currently happening in our, in our midst. But repentance, it, it's, it's, it's a changing of one's mind and heart, resulting in a conversion to a new way of life. You know, it's more than, say, we're sorry, it's more than saying that we're sorry for our sins, but it does include that. That's the, that's the first step, is recognizing our need for Jesus as sinners. But it's more than that. It's a turning of our whole life towards Jesus and away from sin. If you don't, uh, if you were to just give up your give up your sin and your life and your direction and all these things for Jesus, and there was nothing that you were saved to, that would be a very sad state. But we've been saved to a, a new life in Jesus Christ, a brand new life, a turning of our entire beings. And Jesus is still calling people like you and I to preach one to one another the same message: repent for the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of God is here. We're saying we are sorry for our sins, but we're doing more than that. We're shifting our life from one way of life to another. That's why Jesus talked about counting the cost so much, because he knew that when people followed him, it was going to be a life change of some kind. People are going to leave their jobs. People are going to uh, leave their family businesses to follow him and do what he called them to do. It's going to be a totally different way of life, a totally different journey. And to understand this, this message of Jesus, this repentance and forgiveness of sins message, 
this change of life, we're going to look at 1 Peter 1, 1 to 9. So you get to hear it again, Carolyn. And this is just an amazing passage for, for, for Easter morning because we can really see uh, God's vision for, for our lives, for our church. So in 1 Peter 1, 1 to 9, we see the results of repentance and forgiveness of sins and what Jesus is really desiring to do with our lives. These are the final instructions we have from Jesus until he comes again, so this is all very relevant to us. The message, again, has not changed. It's still repentance and the forgiveness of sins and a change of life. So let's look, let's look at what God tells us in Peter. We're going to read 1 Peter uh, 1, 1 to 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the, the genuineness of your faith can be proven to be of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, well, this is 65 years after Jesus walked the earth here, approximately, though many of these people have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So here we, we have Peter writing 65 or 70 years after Jesus' resurrection on the cross. And he, he actually says at the end of this letter that he's writing from a certain place. He's writing from a place called Babylon. Now, Peter is actually writing from Rome, not from Babylon. But he's using Babylon as a veiled reference to, to, to make this point that we are exiles. In fact, he even says in the beginning of the passage that we are exiles. To God's people scattered all over the place, we are exiles. It brings to mind, again, Babylon. You know, the time of Daniel and his friends. When they were, when they were deported to, to Babylon, they were stripped of their identity. They, they were stripped of their people. They were stripped of even their tribe. They tried to strip them of their religion. They tried to strip them of their God. And they were unsuccessful. But, but this, is, this is what's being called to mind when we see the words exile, when we hear, I'm writing you from Babylon, as it says in 1 Peter 5. Um, this, this is a people in exile, um, written, 65 year, written 65 years after Jesus. So what, P, what Peter is saying in this is that since Jesus' resurrection, you know, God's people are still in exile. You're still in exile. Jesus' resurrection on Easter has not changed the politics of Israel. They're still under Roman rule, although that is, you know, if you know history, that's coming to an end 
in a little while here. They are still under Roman rule in Babylon. People thought that Jesus was going to come and physically liberate them from the politics of Rome to be their own sovereign nation. But still here, we see 70 years later, 65 years later, the resurrection did not change that situation right away. But despite that, the salvation that Jesus brought on Easter morning is alive and well, and in fact, it's flourishing. In fact, you know, God's, God's salvation has really taken shape in those 65 years. And what has been accomplished during that time has been uh, made clearer now than it ever was. You know, the message, again, hasn't changed from what Jesus said in, in the end of Luke, when he, before he ascended into heaven. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. It's still the message. And 65 years later, Peter tells us what that looks like. So this, this past fall, uh, I was very thankful for, for the help, and, and uh, many people came and helped us build a shed on our property. And it's actually more like a barn because it's a huge shed. And we, we actually used some of the wood from the old state platform we used to have here at New Life to build the shed, so that was really cool. It's kind of like a, a, a chapel shed now, right? And, you know, when we were building the shed, we just kept on asking the questions, how big do we want the shed to be? This is... We're, we're seriously adulting right now. Like, me and Jackie's biggest dream in our marriage for our lives over a 10-year period was to have a new shed. <laughs> that's, all, that's what we wanted. And so finally it came to this moment where we can actually make this happen. We can build this shed. So we had to decide, well, how big do we want the shed to be? We joked around about it being bigger than our house because who doesn't want to have a shed to put all their stuff in that's in the basement? So then don't have to clean the basement, right? Um... But there's, you know, there, there's height to a shed, there's width, um, there's depth. And so I'd like to, thi I'd like to think about uh, what, God, what, what Jesus did in his resurrection, what he accomplished at Easter, as this new building that God is making for his people to dwell within. Something you might call the kingdom of God or the gospel. Jesus is, is building this for his people, like a home. You know, the political situation hadn't changed in the world. Um, you know, God's people, if you know, again, if you know Christian history, they're about to be persecuted way more than they'd ever been before, coming up very shortly in Rome at the time when Peter wrote this letter. The political situation has not changed. Um, but repent for the forgiveness of sins is still the message. So God is building this new house. God is building the kingdom. You know, and he's using uh, Peter here to, to teach us about what that looks like. What he's doing in our world, what he's doing in their world. You know, it's all the same uh, since God is still building his kingdom since his time uh, rising from the dead. So the first, the first new work God is doing, the new, uh, the new dwelling place, the new building he's building for his people, is um, he's forming a, a shed that has a certain width to it, Right? And we, we read First Peter 1. Um, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. At the time of the writing of Scripture, writing long, long sentences was very popular. It was considered to be an act of great skill to be able to compose these long sentences. That's a long sentence. There's a lot being said in there. But what is the width of this building that God is creating? 
Now, Peter is saying in the opening paragraph of this letter that the old dwelling place where people used to have their identities before Christ, where they used to place their identities, were now null and void in the new building God is making. God is building a new dwelling place for his people, and their identity has now been changed. It's been rooted in Christ alone from many other places. This is a new way of looking at identity for these people, and it's uh, equally profound for us in our world today, to have our primary identity be as a Christian, as a, as a, a Christ follower. It's a new way of looking at the world for them and for us. Our identities are stripped of what they used to be, and now we are primarily a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, that's why Jesus said to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You know, we must radically alter our thinking, our direction, in order to move beyond our earthly identities, the many identities we carry, and to embrace our most important identity as God's people. And as Peter calls them, he calls them God's elect. That's God's people. Again, he's borrowing from the Old Testament language of, of the God's elect in Israel. But he's saying now, God's elect of, of every tribe and tongue, every race, every ethnicity, every possible people group, um, these are now God's elect, and they're scattered throughout the world. And Peter does not address these people in terms of their ancestry. He doesn't address them according to their moral background, about their, their past life of sin or not sin, whatever their, that might be. He doesn't address them by their social status, their wealth or their poverty, or even their race or their family of origin. That's the, old, that's the old building. That's the old identity. That's what we all build our identities on. But now, this people is called God's elect. Now, God's elect are, are made up, again, of all people groups, all cultures, all identities. No one can really say that God's elect looks this way or that way because God's elect is from all over the world in every nation, every ethnicity, every language, every part of society, even socioeconomically, from the, from the ridiculously rich to the shockingly poor, you know, <laughs> on, on both ends of these things, is God's elect. The poor, the rich, the young, the old, males, females, every race, every, every, every language, God's elect. So if people were to, to have to describe what a Christian looked like, technically, it would be impossible. Because what Christians look like, they look like everybody. Like anybody you might see. The only thing that this, and it does, it does talk about their, their previous dwellings. If you, if you see in, uh, in First Peter, it talks about people being scattered, exiles through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are not their homes. Those are the places they've been exiled to. So again, this, this people without a home are God's elect. And they are being called to be to root their identities in Jesus Christ and his work above all other earthly titles and callings. I don't know if you feel it, but I think in the world in which we are living today, you know, we, we are pressured to look for ways in which we are different from one another. That's the big thing that we all do. And we focus intently on our differences, and then we're encouraged to join with others who are like us in fighting others who are not like us. That's how the world works. Find what makes you different. Make that the central part of your identity. Join with other people just like you and hate on other people that are different. Terrible. This way of thinking melts away 
in light of the work that God is doing in calling his exiles uh, back home and saying, you are one in Christ. Despite our differences, and we do have many differences, and we don't need to be blind to those differences. We don't need to, we can even celebrate those differences, but to make them the primary, primary identifier for us um, and then distinguish ourselves from other people and losing fellowship with other people who are different from us would be about the opposite of the gospel that you could go. The whole message of the gospel is every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every gender, every, every person, despite what they do or don't do, made in the image of God, and those that repent and follow Jesus become a part of his elect, and the elect is an extremely diverse group. We need to be reminded that at least in, in the church, the body of Christ, I'm going to call it, the body of Christ, we're serious about being the body of Christ for the world. You know, we need to be reminded that we are unified through Jesus Christ despite all of those outward and even inward differences that we might have. And that unity is something I would consider to be a miracle of the highest order in the world in which we live. But this is one of the things Jesus accomplished at Easter. This is the width of the building that God is making. It's a building, it's a building where everyone's identity is rooted in Christ first. In Christ first. What joins us together as Christians, it's been said, is much stronger than anything that could ever separate us. The blood of Jesus Christ joins us together. In this new building that Jesus is building for us, we are people who, by the mercy of God, have been chosen for a particular purpose. And for this reason, we are to repent and believe the good news. We are to join together with others whose identities are also in Christ and worship with them. You can go from church to church in Saratoga Springs and find the, as diverse, you know, for Sar Saratoga diverse, I guess you could say. Um, you could find the diverse worship services. You could find different ways of worshiping. You know, in, diff in different countries, people worship different. None of them are better or worse than anyone else's methods. But all of, but everyone who's a Christian is, is joined together in Christ. Whether people, you know, sing worship courses, sing hymns, whether they have Sunday school or not, whether they're an older church, a younger church, a white church, uh, a black church, whatever the church is, what joins us together in Christ is the most important thing about us. And in this building, at least, in this place that Jesus is building his kingdom, our identities are rooted in Christ, not in all the places we've been, not, in, not in even our past sins. And that's good news. And that is why we need to take Jesus' words to heart, repent and believe the gospel, climb into this building. It's wide enough for everybody. All Christians, because of our identity being in Jesus, lead this strange double existence where we are, and Peter, Peter really harps on this quite a bit, strangers in a strange land. We are, by our very nature, we are exiles because our, uh, we're living in a sub-society called the kingdom of God in this building. So we have our, we have our lives, um, but no matter how comfortable we get in this world, we're still aliens and strangers. We don't even have to immigrate from where we live in order to become a Christian. We just simply become um, we come from all the places that, that we come from, and we all claim the same identity in Christ. That's the width of what God is building. Next, we're going to look at 1 Peter 3 to see, to see the height of God's building. And this is really a picture of the mercy and grace of God. 
So if you were, if you were looking up in the shed that we built uh, in our backyard, you would see the ceiling not too far off the ground because our shed has a normal kind of roof on it. But in the building that God is building, there is, there is a, there is a um, it's a high building. And, and it goes on as far as the eye can see. When you look up and you're, you're measuring the mercy and grace of God, and you look up in this building God is making, and it's like there's no, um, there's no ceiling. His, his mercy and grace seems to extend forever. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You can just feel, feel the words and, the, and their, their, their imminence and their, their power coming off the page. In God's mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope, through Jesus' rising from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. You know, the height of this room that we are living in is the scope of the mercy of God. It's so high. And it says, he's given us new birth. No matter who our actual parents are, when you become a Christian, God becomes your true father. That sounds crazy to people, but it's true. God is a father. and He becomes our, he becomes our important, that place of father in our lives is filled God. God is our Father. We've become a new people. We have become filled with living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And we have received an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Being kept by God in heaven for us, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of his salvation, which will be revealed in Christ. We have become a new people with a new Father. And we can't even begin to see the amount of mercy and grace that's flowed freely from God the Father towards us. You know, he loves us. He loves us. And the more people that you meet that God forgives and grabs onto, the more you're like, wow, God really, God, God's merciful. I wasn't that bad. You know, <laughs> that's a joke. But this is the thing, like, you, you, see, you see God's, uh, how, God, how God does business, and he is just pouring out grace and mercy on people pouring it out. I love the parable of the sower because in the parable, you know, the, the sower who's planting the seeds is God and then there's different conditions that either make the seeds grow or not grow. Rocky soil, crows come and eat the seeds, and some of it actually grows properly. And some of it's choked out by weeds. But when I read that parable, the thing that strikes me is the sower just throws seeds everywhere. God the sower throws seeds on rocky soil, on hard soil, on good soil. It's not that he's, he's just not withholding his mercy and grace from people. He is, even the fact that Jesus has not come back yet, it's because, it's not because he's slow in keeping his promise. It's because he desires that more people receive mercy and grace from him. That's the ceiling. That's, the, that's what God is building. It's high. We're bound together in our, our shared identity in Christ, which is our primary marker. We, we look at our community, we look at ourselves, and we look up, and we cannot see the end of God's mercy. It's just gripping. I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. And God has made this room for us to dwell within. Called us his children. Regardless of who our parents are, he is, he is our father. 
calls a new people. And this is why Jesus told us in his last moments in Luke 24 that we are to preach repentance for the forgiveness of our, of our sins. Because this is what you're stepping into. This building of grace that God is building, the kingdom of God. I don't fully understand the, the part in Peter that talks about our inheritance. I don't know how that works. I don't know how it's kept in heaven for us and all these different things. But I think the, I, I mean, I don't know exactly how it works, but I do believe it's true. Uh, we have an inheritance from God that's being kept safe by God and will be revealed at a later time. And it will be an incorruptible inheritance being kept safe until the time when God, when the kingdom of God becomes the kingdoms of the world. And God's kingdom is all in all, and all that's going to be revealed at those moments. Jesus knew we need to repent for the forgiveness of our sins in response to Jesus' command in order to receive the grace of God, which he is pouring on us practically without limit. I love how it says in, uh, in one of the John letters, um, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, been poured on us seemingly without limit. It says in the scripture that his mercies are new every morning. Every morning. That's a very poetic way of saying that any moment that you come to Jesus, his mercies are new for you. So why wouldn't you repent? Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you believe the good news? This, this kingdom God is building, it's a kingdom of mercy, a kingdom of grace. It's God's nature to lavish his mercy and grace on people. And all they have to do is be in an open posture to receive it. Not everyone does. People still reject God's grace and love. And God respects that. It doesn't mean he wasn't throwing seeds on them. Repenting and believing the good news, you know, becoming a Christian, means that what God did for Jesus at Easter, what God did for Jesus at Easter, he will do for everyone that puts their trust in him. Resurrection life. It says in, in Romans that the same spirit that raised Christ to life is the same spirit that lives within every believer. And that same spirit can give life to our mortal bodies, our souls. Um, that's God's power. So we've seen the width of the building. We've seen the height of the building. Now we're going to look at the depth of the building. Or we could say, what's inside this building? What, what, what can we find in, in, this, in this kingdom that God's calling us to? You know, if it's our shed in our yard, it's our, our summer lawn furniture gets stored away in the shed, then we empty it out, and who knows what's going to go in there? I have no idea. I'm excited about it to see what we can fit in that shed. But what's in this place that God is, what, what is the depth, what is the, what's composed of this, um, in this shed? I'm making it sound worse when I say shed, building that God's making in his kingdom. 1 Peter 1, 6-9. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that the proven, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what will this room contain? Well, first of all, we see that just because we're in this kingdom of God, it doesn't mean that suffering and persecution are not going to come for us. They still come. And Peter writes from Babylon, he's expressing this idea of being a stranger, of being an outsider. And at Peter's time, 
you know, 65 years after Easter morning, everyone is still under political rule of Rome. And Christians are beginning to be persecuted, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Peter, Peter says, you're going to suffer some grief. You're going to have some trials, even in this new kingdom you're entering. And unfortunately, it's because you're entering the kingdom that you will have this opposition, because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world are opposed from each other's purposes. From Peter's perspective, the suffering that we, that we go through in this kingdom will be a means by which the quality of our faith can be show, shown all the more and shine all the more. And when Jesus finally is revealed at the end of time, the result of all this will be just an explosion of praise. It says, inexpressible and glorious joy. You know, the whole world will see what God has been building, how he's been building his kingdom. The whole world will see the progress from the time of Christ all on down to the time when Jesus comes back and all that it has, it has, um, has wrought in the world. The kingdom will be fully revealed. But as we wait, we are to live our lives to inhabit this, this great room that God is building for us, the kingdom of God. And Peter says we are to, to inhabit this great room with thanksgiving and love for Jesus in our hearts with an inexpressible and glorious joy, it says in verse 8, welling up within us. For we are receiving the end result of our faith, the salvation of our souls. What God is doing in our world today is the beginning of the salvation or the rescue plan that God has accomplished for us on the cross. You know, we dwell in this place um, of great depth in this room God is building for us, packed with his mercies, packed with things that we individually need as individuals and families. God provides for us. And as we begin to walk into this room and observe what we see around us, um, we, we can see that there is room enough for everybody, that the room is wide. Every tribe and tongue, every nation, every ability and disability, every gender, every socioeconomic status, every, every background, every moral background, this room is full, is wide, full of people. The same people that Jesus fraternized with when he was on the earth. People that were open to receiving mercy that God was trying to pour out. And believe me, I think that Jesus would have poured out mercy on the teachers of the law and the Pharisees if they'd only asked. But they didn't because they had their own ideas of what should happen and what it should look like, and so they missed it. Um, let's not miss that. It's a wide place we're defined by our relationship with God. It's a high place in, in the sense that we can't even see the ceiling of the mercy and grace of God. He pours out so much on us. And it's a deep place. Sometimes we're going to suffer for our faith or be persecuted, but God uses all of that pressure and all of that pain that we experience in our life to make us into pure gold. If you know, they boil gold to skim off the impurities until it's fully pure, and that's what God does with us. And the end result of all of this faith and all this walk to Peter is what he calls the salvation of our souls. You know, one day the whole world will see God's kingdom in its fullness. But for now, God is working in a more hidden way is protecting our inheritance. But even now, we are receiving, we are filled with inexpressible joy because we are seeing our salvation be realized. In, Re in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, and it's a message to Christians, but nonetheless, it's a message for everybody. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Indiscriminately, Jesus knocks on doors, and all you got to do is open the door, right? I will eat with you, and you will eat with me, and we will have fellowship. Just open the door. I'm knocking. What Jesus said after his resurrection is still the truth of our day, though it's going to look slightly different in every generation. Jesus says, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Again, this repentance is not simply not simply saying we're sorry for our sin, though it includes that. Re- true repentance is more like turning around from our sin and opening the door to Jesus to come into your life. Ephesians 3.16, Paul, Paul prays this amazing prayer. He says, I pray that out of the glorious riches God out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. To know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This room, this kingdom that God is building, the kingdom of his love, it's high, it's long, it's wide, it's deep, because it's God's love. I do not have all the information, and neither do you, but you don't need to understand everything about the Bible or God before you make a decision to enter God's kingdom and open the door through faith in Jesus. Because in this room is a new identity, a new way of life, a new family, and a new home. So I echo what Jesus would say to you if he were here today. He'd say, repent and believe the good news. Enter into what God is doing today in our ways, in our world. Um, and we here as a church family, we are, we are all here to support one another by walking this journey out. That's why we say that, you know, small groups are the biggest part of our church's ministry because that's where we actually use our gifts, pray for one another, we make ourselves known, and we, we get to know other people. And more importantly, we walk this journey of faith together, a new family, a new home to walk together. I just would invite you to respond as Jesus guides you. You know, he's, he's inviting you into his kingdom, into this beautiful room that he's prepared for you. It's wide, includes everybody. It's high, his mercies never fail, and it's deep. But even through suffering, um, we rejoice because we can see the salvation of our souls. So you hear his voice this morning knocking on the heart of your door if you're interested. I invite you to pray this prayer with me as the worship team uh, closes us in a song. Heavenly Father, I believe, I personally believe that you stand and knock at the door of every heart and every generation and that you respect the will of men and women who either choose to receive from you or stay out or leave you out in the cold. I pray that if you are knocking on the door of anyone's hearts in this place, whether someone who's followed Christ for many years or someone who's never, ever um, made a declaration to become a part of what you're doing on this earth through your resurrection kingdom. I pray that you would speak to those people, Lord, that you would forgive our sins and invite us into the spacious kingdom of your Son that we might walk out our salvation with one another as as we walk as exiles towards our home in heaven 
but our inheritance never spoils or perishes and is kept by you. So Lord, that your mercy and grace win the day today, that it win the day in our hearts, in our church, that it win the day in other churches as they gather to worship Jesus. Lord, let your grace and mercy um, find its perfect home in the emptiness of our own hearts as we come to you with nothing and receive from you our kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.